0: Chapter Five: A Battle. The king proves his war skill. Urkun was the first to arrive, all clad in martial finery, accompanied by two massive guards, each one holding one of the prince's ornate war banners. My emperor, Urkun's shout was proud and disdainful. Would you let me command the warriors? If you will relieve. It will relieve you of that care when doubtless you have many other concerns with which to occupy your time. Alric replied impatiently. You're most thoughtful Prince Erkun, but fear not for me. I shall command the armies and the navies of Malnibine, for that is the duty of the emperor. Akun glowered and stepped to one side as Divimdfar, Lord of the Dragon Caves, entered. He had No guard whatsoever with him, and it seemed he had dressed hastily. He carried his helmet under his arm. My Emperor, I bring news of the dragons. I thank you Divimtvar, but wait until all my commanders are assembled and impart the news to them too. Divimtvar bowed and went to stand on the opposite side of the hall to that on which Prince Iokun stood. Gradually the warriors arrived until a score of great captains waited at the foot of the steps, which led to the ruby throne where Elric sat. Elric himself still wore the clothes in which he had gone riding that morning. He had not had time to change and had, until a little while before, been consulting maps of the mazes, maps which only he could read and which at normal times were hidden by magical means from any who might attempt to find them. "'Southlanders would steal Imria's wealth and slay us all,' Elric began. "'They believe they have found a way through our sea maze. "'A fleet of a hundred warships sails on Malnibane even now. "'Tomorrow it will wait below the horizon until dusk when it will sail to the maze and enter. "'By midnight it expects to reach the harbour and to have taken the dreaming city before dawn. "'Is that possible, I wonder?' No, many spoke the single word. No, Alaric smiled. But how shall we best enjoy this little war they offer us? Erdkun as ever was first to shout, let us go to meet them now with dragons and with battle barges. Let us pursue them onto their own land, take their war to them. Let us attack their nations and burn their cities. Let us conquer them and thus ensure our own security. Divim Tvar spoke up again. No dragons, he said. What? Erkuhn world, what? No dragons, prince. They will not be awakened. The dragons sleep in their caverns, exhausted by their last engagement. On your behalf. Mine? You would use them in our conflict with the Vilmurian pirates. I told you that I would prefer to save them for a larger engagement, but you flew them against the pirates and you burned their little boats now the dragons are asleep. Erkun glowered. He looked up at Elric. I did not expect. Elric raised his hand. We need not use our dragons until such a time as we really need them. This attack from the Southlander fleet is nothing. But we will conserve our strength if we bide our time. Let them think we are unready. Let them enter the maze. Once the whole hundred are through, we close in, blocking off all routes in or out of the maze trapped, they will be crushed by us. The raccoon looked pettishly at his feet, evidently wishing he could think of some flaw in the plan. Tall, old admiral, Margum Colum, in his sea-green armour, stepped forward and bowed. The golden battle barges of Imre are ready to defend our city, my liege. It will take time, however, to maneuver them into position. It is doubtful if they all will fit into the maze at once. Then sail some of them out now, and hide them around the coast so that they can wait for any survivors that may escape our attack," Elric instructed him. A useful plan, my liege. Margum Colum bowed and sank back into the crowd of his peers. The debate continued for some time, and then they were ready and about to leave. But then Prince Erkun bellowed once more. I repeat my offer to the Emperor. His person is too valuable to risk in battle. My person? It is worthless. Let me command the warriors of both land and sea while the Emperor may remain at the palace, untroubled by the battle, confident that it will be won, and the Southlanders trounced. Perhaps there is a book he wishes to finish. Elric smiled. Again I thank you for your concern, Prince Erkon, but an Emperor must exercise his body as well as his mind. I will command the warriors tomorrow. When Elric arrived back at his apartments, it was to discover that Tanglebones had already laid out his heavy, black wargear. Here was the armour which had served a hundred Malnabonean emperors, an armour which was forged by sorcery to give it a strength unequalled on the realm of earth, which could, so rumour went, even withstand the bites of the mythical rune blades, Stormbringer and Mournblade which had been wielded by the wickedest of Malnabonet's many wicked rulers before being seized by the lords of the higher worlds and hidden forever in a realm where even those lords might rarely venture. The face of the Tangled Man was full of joy as he touched each piece of armour, each finely balanced weapon with his long, gnarled fingers. His seamed face looked up to regard Elric's care-ravaged features, Oh, my lord. Oh, my king. Soon you will know the joy of the fight. Ay, Tanglebones, and let us hope it will be a joy. I taught you all the skills, the art of the sword and the poignard, the art of the bow, the art of the spear, both mounted and on foot. You were learned well, for all they say that you are weak. Save one, there's no better swordsman than El Nibirne. Prince Irkoun couldn't could be better than me, Auric said reflectively. Could he not? I said save one, my lord. And Irkoon is that one. Well, one day perhaps we'll be able to test the matter. I'll bathe before I don all that metal. Best make speed, master. From what I hear, there is much to do. And I'll sleep after I've bathed, Auric smiled at his old friend's consternation. It will be better thus, for I cannot personally direct the barges into position. I am needed to command the fray, and that I will do better when I've rested. If you think it is good, Lord King, then it is good. And you are astonished. You are too eager, Tanglebones, to get me into all that stuff and see me strut about as if I were Ariok himself. Tanglebone's hand flew up to his mouth as if he had spoken the words not his master, and he was trying to block them. His eyes widened. Elric laughed. You think I speak bold heresies, eh? Well, I've spoken worse without any ill befalling me. On Malnibane, Tanglebones, the Emperors control the demons, not the reverse. So you say, my liege. It is the truth. Elric swept from the room, calling for his slaves. The war fever filled him, and he was jubilant. Now he was in all his black gear. His massive breastplate the padded jerkin, the long greaves, the male gauntlets. At his side was a five-foot broadsword, which it was said had belonged to a human hero called Albeck. Resting on the deck against the golden rail of the bridge was the great round warboard, his shield bearing the sign of the swooping dragon, and a helm was on his head, a black helm with a dragon's head craning over the peak, and dragon's wings flaring backward above it, and a dragon's tail curling down his back. All the helm was black, but within the helm there was a white shadow from which glared two crimson orbs, and from the sides of the helm strayed wisps of milk-white hair, almost like smoke escaping from a burning building. And as the helm turned and what little light came from the lantern, hanging at the base of the mainmast, the white shadow sharpened to reveal features, fine, handsome features, a straight nose, curved lips, upslanting eyes. The face of Emperor Eric of Malnibene peered into the gloom of the maze as he listened for the first sounds of the sea raiders' approach. He stood on the high bridge of the great golden battle barge which, like all its kind, resembled a floating ziggurat, equipped with masts and sails and oars and catapults. This ship was called the Son of the Pyrae, and it was the flagship flagship of the fleet. The Grand Admiral Magnum Colum stood beside Elric. Like Divim Tvar, the Admiral was one of Elric's few close friends. He had known Elric all his life, and had encouraged him to learn all that he could concerning the running of fighting ships and fighting fleets. Privately, Margum Colum might fear that Elric was too scholarly and introspective to rule Malnuganay, but he accepted Elric's right to rule, and was made angry and impatient by the talk of the likes of Erkun. Prince Erkun was also aboard the flagship, though at this moment he was below inspecting the war engines. The son of the Pyre lay at anchor in a huge grotto, one of the hundreds built into the walls of the maze when the maze itself was built and designed for just this purpose, to hide a battle barge. There was just enough height for the masts and enough width for the oars to move freely. Each of the golden battle barges was equipped with banks of oars each bank containing between 20 and 30 oars on each side. The banks were four, five, or six decks high, and, and, as in the case of the son of the Pyre, might have been three independent steering systems, fore and aft. Being armoured all in gold, the ships were virtually indestructible, and for all their massive size they could move swiftly and manoeuvre delicately when occasion demanded. It was not the first time they had waited for their enemies in these grottoes. It would not be the last. Though, when next they waited, it would be in greatly different circumstances. The battle barges of Malnibane were rarely seen on the open seas these days, but once they had sailed the oceans of the world like fearsome floating mountains of gold, and they had brought terror wherever they were sighted. The fleet had been larger then, comprising hundreds of craft, Now there were less than forty ships, but forty would suffice. Now in damp darkness they awaited their enemies. Listening to the hollow slap of the water against the sides of the ship, Elric wished that he had been able to conceive a better plan than this. He was sure that this would work, but he regretted the waste of lives, both Malnabonean and Barbarian. It would have been better if some way could have been devised of frightening the barbarians away rather than trapping them in the sea maze. A Southlander fleet was not the first to have been attracted to Imra's fabulous wealth. The Southlander crews were not the first to entertain the belief that the Malneboneans, because they now never ventured far from the Dreaming City, had become decadent and unable to defend their treasures and so the Southlanders must be destroyed in order to make the lesson clear. Maldimbede was still strong. She was strong enough in ur view to resume her former dominance in the world, strong in sorcery, if not in soldiery. Hst! Admiral Magnum column craned forward. Was that the sound of an oar? Elric nodded. I think so. Now they heard regular splashes as of rows of oars dipping in and out of the water, and they heard the creak of timbers. The Southlanders were coming. The son of the Pyrae was the ship nearest to the entrance, and it would be the first to move out, but only when the last of the Southlanders' ships had passed them. Admiral Margum Colum bent and extinguished the lantern, and then quickly, quietly, he descended to inform his crew of the raider's coming. Not long before, Irkoun had used his sorcery to summon a peculiar mist, which hid the golden barges from view, but through which those of the Malnabanean ships could peer. Now, Elric saw torches burning in the channel ahead, as carefully the reavers negotiated the maze. Within the space of a few minutes, tens of the galleys had passed the grotto, Admiral Magum Colum rejoined Elric on the bridge, and now Prince Erkun was with him. Erkun, too, wore a dragon helm, though less magnificent than Elric's, for Elric was chief of the few surviving dragon princes of Malnibene. Erkun was grinning through the gloom, and his eyes gleamed in anticipation of the bloodletting to come. Elric wished that Prince Urquhun had chosen another ship than his, but it was Urquhun's right to be boarded on the flagship, and he could not deny it. Now half the hundred vessels had gone past. Urquhun's armour creaked as, impatiently, he waited pacing the bridge, his gauntleted hand on the hilt of his broadsword. Soon, he kept saying to himself, soon. And then their anchor was groaning upwards, and their oars were plunging into the water as the last southland ship went by, and they shot from the grotto into the channel, ramming the enemy galley amidships and smashing it in two. A great yell went up from the barbarian crew, and men were flung in all directions. Torches danced erratically on the remains of the deck as men tried to save themselves from slipping into the dark, chill waters of the channel. A few brave spears rattled against the side of the Maunabanean flag galley as it began to turn amongst the debris it had created. But Imrurian archers returned the shots and a few survivors went down. The sound of this swift conflict was the signal to the other battle barges. In perfect order they came from both sides of the high rock walls. And it must have seemed to the astonished barbarians that the great golden ships had actually emerged from solid stone. Ghost ships, filled with demons who rained spears, arrows and brands upon them. Now the whole of the Twisting Channel was confusion and a medley of war shouts echoed and boomed, and the clash of steel upon steel was like the savage hissing of some monstrous snake, and the raiding fleet itself resembled a snake which had been broken into a hundred pieces by the tall, implacable, golden ships of Malnibanei these ships seemed almost serene as they moved amongst their enemies, their grappling irons flashing out to catch wooden decks and rails and draw the galleys nearer so they might be destroyed. But the Southlanders were brave, and they kept their heads after the initial astonishment. Three of their galleys headed straight for the son of the Pyrae, recognising it as the flagship. Fire arrows sailed high and dropped down into the decks, which were wooden and not protected by the golden armour, starting fires wherever they fell or else bringing blazing death to the men they struck. Elric raised his shield above his head and two arrows struck it, bouncing, still flaring, to the lower deck. He leapt over the rail following the arrows, jumping down to the widest and most exposed deck where his warriors were grouping, ready to deal with the attacking galleys. Catapults thudded and, Balls of blue fire swished through the blackness, narrowly missing all three galleys. Another volley followed, and one mass of flame struck the far galleys mast and then burst upon the deck, scattering huge flames wherever it touched. Grapples snaked out and seized the first galley, dragging it close, and Elric was amongst the first to leap down onto the deck, rushing forward to where he saw the Southland captain, dressed all in crude, checkered armour a chequered surcoat over that, a big sword in both his huge hands bellowing at him, bellowing at his men to resist the Malnabonean dogs. As Elric approached the bridge, three barbarians armed with curved swords and small oblong shields ran at him. Their faces were full of fear, but there was determination there as well, as if they knew they must die, but planned to wreak as much destruction as they could before their souls were taken. Shifting his warboard onto his arm, Elric took his own broadsword in both hands and charged the sailors, knocking one off his feet with the lip of the shield and smashing the collarbone of another. The remaining barbarian skipped aside and thrust his curved sword at Elric's face. Elric barely escaped the thrust and the sharp edge of the sword grazed his cheek, bringing out a drop or two of blood. Elric swung the broadsword like a scythe and it bit deep into the barbarian's waist, almost cutting him in two. He struggled for a moment, unable to believe that he was dead. But then as Elric yanked the sword free, he closed his eyes and dropped. The man who had been struck by Elric's shield was staggering to his feet, and Elric whirled, saw him and smashing the broadsword into his skull. Now the way was clear to the bridge. Alric began to climb the ladder, noting that the captain had seen him and was waiting for him at the top. Alric raised his shield to take the captain's first blow. Through all the noise, he thought he heard the man shouting at him. Die, you white-faced demon! Die! You have no place on this earth any longer! Alric was almost diverted from defending himself by these words. They rang true to him. Perhaps he really had no place on the earth. Perhaps that was why Malnibane was slowly collapsing. Why fewer children were born every year. Why the dragons themselves were no longer breeding. He let the captain strike another blow at the shield, and then he reached under it and swung at the man's legs, but the captain had anticipated the move and jumped backwards. This, however, gave Elric time to run up the few remaining steps and stand on the deck, facing the captain. The man's face was almost as pale as Elric's. He was sweating and he was panting, and his eyes had misery in them as well as wild fear. You should leave us alone, Elric heard himself saying. We offer you no harm, Barbarian. When did Malnibane last sail against the young kingdoms? You offer us harm by your very presence, Whiteface. There is your sorcery, there are your customs, and there is your arrogance. Is that why you came here? Was your attack motivated by disgust for us? Or would you help yourselves to our wealth? Admit it, Captain. Greed brought you to Mount Well, at least greed is an honest quality, an understandable one, but you creatures are not human. Worse, you are not gods, though you behave as if you were. Your day is over and you must be wiped out, your city destroyed, your sorceries forgotten. Elric nodded. Well, perhaps you're right, Captain. I am right. Our holy men say so. Our seers predict your downfall. The Chaos Lords whom you serve will themselves bring about that downfall. The Chaos Lords no longer have any interest in the affairs of Malnibane. They took away their power nearly a thousand years hence. A thousand years since. Alric watched the Captain carefully, judging the distance between them. Perhaps that is why our power waned, or perhaps we merely became tired of power.--Be well, that as it may, the captain said, wiping his sweating brow, your time is over, and you must be destroyed once and for all.' And then he groaned, for Elric's broadsword had come up under his chequered breastplate and gone up through his stomach into his lungs. One knee bent, one leg stretched behind him, Elric began to withdraw the long sword. Looking up into the barbarian's face, which had now assumed an expression of reconciliation. Well, that was unfair, Whiteface. We well, had barely begun to talk, and you cut the conversation short. You are most skilful. May you writhe forever in a higher hell, and farewell. Elric hardly knew why, after the captain had fallen face down on the deck. He hacked twice at the neck until the head rolled off the body, rolled to the side of the bridge, and then was kicked over the side so that it sank into the cold, deep water. And then Erkuhn the came up behind Elric, as he was still grinning. You fight fiercely and well, my Lord Emperor. That dead man was right. Right, Elric glared at his cousin. Right. I, in your assessment of your prowess... And chuckling, Erkun went to supervise his men who were finishing off the few remaining raiders. Elric did not know why he had refused to hate Erkun before, but now he did hate Erkun, and in that moment he would gladly have slain them. It was as if Erkun had looked deeply into Elric's soul and expressed contempt for what he had seen there. Suddenly, Elric was overwhelmed by an angry misery, and he wished with all his heart that he was not a Malnobanean, that he was not an Emperor, and that Er Erkuhn had never been born.